Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, everybody. Patrick Connor here, and welcome to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. I'm here with my dude, Aris Pina, of course, CompuBox operator and fellow fight history file like myself, here to talk about last minute replacements. Man, last weekend we had a lot of boxing, but of course, one of the most prominent fights, apart from Keith Thurman, uh, was Bam Rodriguez winning the vacant WBC super flyweight belt from uh, Carlos Cuadras, and he was a last minute replacement. So we're talking about more two classes. Man. It's just like, it, how often does it even happen, Eris, that like somebody comes in like that and swoops in and steals shit, dude? Well, we're talking about that shit today. Yeah, man. You know, it's it's one of those things in boxing that they always say anything can happen. And it really can. You know, to guys with two fists, you know, as long as they can land or something crazy, shit happens in the ring. And with that being said, um, yeah, that was that was a pretty big significant fight for him because Bam is, became the first person born in... Um, in the year 2000 or in the 2000s to uh, become a world champion, making him the youngest world champion in boxing. Um, and not only that, he moved up two divisions to fight a very proven guy in Quadras who went in there with a who's who of everyone and went toe-to-toe and it's been, you know, whether win or lose has been very competitive and near the top of the division for a very long time. So, yeah, that was a big task to handle, you know what I mean? And the size difference was definitely there when they got in the ring and you saw them together. But, I mean, Rodriguez put on a beautiful exhibition, bro. He looked like um a lot of people were comparing him to Orlando Canizales and that's a very fair comparison that footwork is incredible you know when the, the way he shifted and, sl- and slipped <laughs> when he landed that uppercut in the third round to drop quadras was um a thing of beauty you know what I mean so at the fact of the matter is that he's only what is he 21 22 years old and um he has a huge future ahead of him whether it's going to be at the uh, division that he just acquired the title in is remains to be seen because he is pretty small still um but regardless where it is that kid's a star you know what i mean but yeah he was definitely a last minute replacement because the first guy that was supposed to fight um sister kept going <laughs> around five and was gonna fight quadrus in a rematch and that was the one of the i think that was probably the one fight that hasn't happened out of the out of you know the four do out of I'd the new the four, four kings or whatever exactly the, if you want to give the four kings monkey to anyone give it to them definitely and um I guess that was the one fight that hasn't happened in a rematch yet, right? Right, yeah. I mean, yeah. so it it makes sense. And I I mean, I was waiting for I was it. Looking I wanted to it absolutely. That fight was gonna be explosive uh, regardless. Quadris does not type is not the type that runs away, throws a ton of punches, stays right in there, obviously. Um so runs by we've seen him over the years and how much of a badass he absolutely is. And considering both guys, especially so runs by has gotten better over the years, I mean, but <laughs> That was that was going to be an all-out shootout, but regard, you know, when Bam stepped in, um, that got a lot of people's attention. Everyone was really, really excited about it because not only was he a super prospect that just had world title written all over him, it was a matter of if it was just when. The fact that he was stepping up and jumping up two classes just made it even more intriguing. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, and I, I think that it was like the last minute replacement status, Bam Rodriguez, and like you know, uh, coming into this this opportunity, not really knowing where Carlos Cuadras is in his career, and it still remains to be seen what the win really means. I guess we need to see what Cuadras goes on to even do. And personally, I wouldn't have any issue with him still fighting Srisak at Sorongvasai. I mean, just to round that shit oh, out, please, yeah, absolutely, for closure. <laughs> and I, I didn't think that uh, Carlos Cuadras looked so bad that that he's shot or shouldn't be fighting or anything like that. And it was a really good win from Bam Rodriguez. And on top of that, the willingness, you know, the, the being willing to step in last minute like that. I mean, not a lot of people, not a lot of fighters are, and of course not everybody's ready to, to be fair, you know, they can call anybody. And if somebody's not training and they can't make weight, they can't make weight, but nonetheless, there, you also have to be willing to take that chance. And he was willing to take that chance. So paid off. No, it really did. Um, like you said, man, the, when people were worried about the size difference at first, and it was kind of sizable, when they got in the ring, it was the skill set that he had, man. He just knows how to place his shots. He fights so much, so mature for a young fighter the way he is. I mean, I understand he's been fighting since he was a little kid. And, you know, he's been with the Garcia Boxing Academy for a long time now. And Obviously, all their fighters are very, very well-versed and world champions galore, but, you know, Quadras also was putting a lot of pressure on him, and it wasn't just, like, one-way traffic throughout this fight. After he got dropped, he, the, you know, he kind of um, stepped into another gear after that, and, you know, he laid hands on Bam. You know, he, landed, he was landing a lot of uh, punishing body shots. You saw Rodriguez's face really marked up afterwards, stuff like that. Quadras was, you know... Yeah, he outthrew on Rodriguez. He did not land him. Um, Bam was much more um, accurate, but Quadras, like you said, was not, by no means not competitive. He was there right to the very end and made it very, very tough. And um, so, yeah, Rodriguez, not only that he won a world title from this and, like, you know, has a very, very um, recognized name on his ledger now, um, he passed a lot of tests in this fight. So, yeah, man, you know, the future's only up for him. But, again, I'm just curious to see what he's going to have to do. I know... There's a lot of big fights on the horizon there at the, at the new division that he's at now. I should fly, um, and, <clears throat> but he also still hinted that he's, you know, much willing and able to go back down if, you know, the right opportunity arises. Yeah. I mean, I guess just his age and whatnot <clears throat> makes it like you kind of alluded to earlier. We're not entirely sure where he's even going to wind up division wise, but it was a great win and yeah. the ability to come in, last minute like that and put on a show win or lose i guess is what we're here talking about today based off of that obviously but <clears throat> you know just kind of going through history and talking about uh fighters throughout history who have come in as last minute replacements and i mean we'll probably talk mostly about wins today but perhaps a couple losses or famed losses too there's some good ones um but what's a what's like I don't know, like the epitome of last minute replacement for you. Like you think of last minute replacement opponent. That's like notable. What's that for you? I mean, the first one that came to mind is actually a loss, but the reason why I say it's just so notable is the first one I really remember reading about as a kid, because they made it, um, they made a KO magazine award after it, basically with the unofficial official awards, more or less. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I'm being kind of common here, if you want to call it that, but I'm going with Azuma Nelson, uh, Salvador Sanchez. And that's not, it's pretty last minute. I mean, like, it wasn't to the point where, like, Nelson got the call two days before or something like that, but, like, 
it, it was still a last minute opponent. And back when it happened in 1982, absolutely nobody knew who Nelson was, you know? So um, that in itself, and from reading about it, I remember just reading about it as a kid, like in, in the magazines, because they talked about that fight a lot. And Roy Jones actually talked about it on television and said it was his all-time favorite fight. I believe he said something to that effect. Unlike a, you know, a, a great that, fight. Uh, it was an incredible fight. A fight that no one expected it to be incredible either. You know, supposed to be just like a walkover. But, <clears throat> but Roy Jones mentioned that. He said, you know, oh, I've watched that fight over a hundred times. You know, Sanchez is one of, was one of his favorite fighters. And when Roy said that as a kid, that made me much more intrigued about Sanchez. Reading that he died in a car accident at a young age made me more intrigued. The fact of the matter is there was no YouTube or me having any type of internet really that I can watch footage of him in the mid-90s made me even more kind of like, damn, you know, I didn't even know what he looked like until one day I picked up a ring magazine and they did um, a countdown of like the 50 best fighters of the last 50 years or something like that. And Sanchez was in it. And when I saw his face, I did not expect, I was like, expect whenever I thought of like, I thought he had some kind of mustache and beard and had a certain hair, whatever it may be. Right. And then when I finally saw him as a clean faced dude with an Afro, I was like, Whoa, you know, kind of blew my mind. That was the last thing I expected. And then there was the photo of him just jabbing the shit out of Danny Lopez. <laughs> and you just see that throw again. And I'm like, that is not what I expected to like to look at. And that just, so it took a few more years and then I was finally able to um, win a uh, win an auction on eBay, which was in, that had a bunch of fights. I had Gomez Pintor, it had um, Zarate Zamora, and I had Sanchez Nelson. That was the main one I wanted, and I ended up winning it. And then it must came go in. back a little bit for for to get that on eBay. Yeah, 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 absolutely. We're talking <laughs> Jesus. When was that? Two thousand, maybe. Around then, probably 2001. I don't know, something around then. Damn. Uh, yeah, man. So finally watching that fight and then watching it, that just made me even more just like, holy shit. And I just, everything just kind of came full circle for it. But, you know, the backstory to it was Sanchez was originally supposed to be fighting a fighter by the name of Mario Miranda, who was an undefeated Colombian contender at the time. And, uh, you know, a tough guy, but he was much more of an unknown as well. His main attribute was that he scored a bunch of knockouts and he was really tall and gangly. So people expected a lot of big things from him, but Miranda ends up falling out. And then that's when Nelson came in and Azuma Nelson at the time was, what was he Pat around 13 and 0? Uh, something like that. Yeah, it was, it was, he had a, in the teens, his fights for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But early on, most of his early fights were, you know, at Accra, Ghana and stuff like that. But you have to remember even though that was happening, his first, his early pro fights, his first pro fight was against a guy named Billy Kwame. It was a 10 fight. It was a 10 round decision. Most guys turn in pro. They're only, they don't fight 10 rounds like that. Nelson was already built different. Third pro fight. He was already in the 12 round where he scored a knockout. Um, fourth pro fight, same thing, 12 rounds and stuff like that. So Nelson was already gaining decision and he was already like moving on and winning the Ghanaian featherweight title, the African union boxing title. And then pretty soon before you knew he was already winning the Commonwealth featherweight title. So he was making strides at that point. He was moving pretty fast, but he was still an unknown commodity because in 1982, who was really following like that? You know what I mean? And so when Nelson gets the opportunity to, um, to get this fight, everybody is just kind of like, Azuma who? All right, you know, it doesn't, 
doesn't really seem like much of a big deal, but Nelson, from all accounts and from what we reading different various things and talking to people who are involved in the fight, took it absolutely seriously. Like he just went wild with it. And Nelson at that point was um, with Mickey Duff. And <clears throat> so when reporters and other people were talking to Duff and asking beforehand, you know, well, what do you think about uh, Sanchez and, you know, his chances and all this other stuff? And then people asked him, they was like, when they asked him, they're like, hey, man, you know, can he fight? And then Duff just kind of laughed it off. He was like, ah, <laughs> you know, you'll see. But when it came to it, you know, um, the day of the fight, there's been footage you see, there's like footage out there of the, um, of the weigh-in and other stuff going on before it. But I've read that Nelson actually ran all around MSG before the fight, like the day of, just like he was so hyped up and everything. And like, I don't think anybody expected what they were going to expect. But coming in there, you know, he gave Sanchez an absolute hell. I've mentioned it before. Um, when we've talked about Azuma Nelson, I've mentioned before that I, that I've read his, uh, I guess it's biography. I mean, but there's so many quotes in it. That's almost a friggin' autobiography. And he talks about the fight. And I mean, a lot of it is from his perspective, Azuma Nelson's perspective and, you know, like the, there's just like an excuse for dang near everything in there, which I guess you'd expect if the if it's he's always done his, that for all of his fights. Though Nelson's been the type of guy who, um, yeah, he's he's, he's got some funny fight. story or like you know funny thing about that. You know that day earlier that day I ate something. You know it's he's got some <laughs> weird story for everything, but yeah, I mean he he basically says that if he had gotten a full training camp for this that he had won that he would have won. And it's kind of like when Bryn and I talked about Lewis Klitschko, for instance, and I say this every time somebody brings this up, like, you know, uh, Vita Lee Klitschko was a last minute replacement. So he had a short training camp and it's kind of like, well, so did Lennox Lewis, dude. Like, I mean, he also fought Vita Lee Klitschko yeah. last minute. So, I mean, Salvador Sanchez also fought Azuma Nelson last minute. And now Very we know exactly. Azuma Nelson was a fucking badass. I mean, he was young. He was green, obviously. But we know that he was a badass and he turned into a much better fighter. So, I mean, it's the point being that, you know, they both fought each other on short notice. Like, so that's, I guess, one both of the... Won. Yeah, and as you watch the fight, Sanchez is clearly like, I don't, I'm not going to use, you know, collecting data because I hate that stupid-ass term. <laughs> he's downloading <laughs> the Matrix. He's Yeah, he's yeah, he, whatever. You the, call it. Yeah. But Sanchez <laughs> is clearly learning as each round goes around because he was startled at first as you watch the fight. I'm sure people listening to the show have seen the fight. And you can tell that he doesn't know what the hell is going on for the first few rounds. Like, he doesn't really know how to take uh, Nelson. Because Nelson, I want to say he was absolutely wild. There was clearly skill in there. But, like, he was very aggressive and he was fast and he was flurrying in. He was highly shuffling even a couple of times. Like, he was really confident. And, and he was strong, as we obviously know throughout the years and everything. And Sanchez, just like you just mentioned, he didn't know anything about him beforehand, was kind of taken aback. He didn't really know how to handle it at first. But Sanchez, also being Sanchez, <coughs> one of the smartest fighters in ring history, each round he started, you know, he was studying in him, started picking up little things here and there, started figuring out things. And then by round seven, when he landed that monster left hook that dropped Nelson for the first time, you know that was the brilliance of him that by that point he started figuring you know he found a pattern of what he was working with but nelson to his credit still came back and still made it for a dramatic fight until you know the finish yeah you can tell that i mean and like i said nelson obviously wound up being a great fighter but you could tell even just stylistically 
he doesn't have a very easy style to figure out. He's a natural counterpuncher, but he's an aggressive counterpuncher. So he's the kind of counterpuncher like uh, that puts pressure on you with his posture and with the way that, you know, like his footwork and stuff like that. But he's not like, uh, you know, a lot of counterpunchers lay back, but mm. he's, he's not like he's constantly on your ass, but then takes what you give him. And then he had an incredible uppercut, really great hook. Uh, and you could tell that Sanchez was having a difficult time trying to figure out his style. And I mean, obviously, in the later rounds, he clearly did figure out the style, but there weren't too many moments in that fight where he was like out of danger. At any moment, Azuma Nelson was still in that shit, and he was still able to dig deep. And on on top of, you know, the, the style or whatever, just really tenacious, like never-ending reserve of energy, it seemed. You know, that's what what made him great later on too was that he was just uh, a punching machine at times when he needed to be dude was, was a really really great fighter one of my favorites yeah, to oh, watch for sure oh, yeah my all-time favorites one of you know a great great fighter and also has to be mentioned bro man must be intimidating as hell to hear um nelson's supporters around ringside usually you heard it and what nelson you heard at ike corte fights and other ones when you hear like the banging of the drums and other stuff I'm not sure if that would be really allowed today, but back in, you know, their time and their primes and stuff like that, obviously it was, I found it to be pretty exciting when I watched them play. I loved to hear that shit when I was a kid. I thought it was awesome, but to be their opponent must've been just like. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that would have been pretty wild. Like the, just the amount of noise and shit like that. There are a handful of crowds where that type of stuff happens. Like, for instance, there have been a number of times where I've seen Argentine fighters fight in person. Right. Man, those 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 fans go and make some fucking noise oh, for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. And but like you know, there are a handful of other kinds of crowds that will just get up and Ricky uh, Hatton, uh, for yeah, example, yeah. the horns of their fights. I mean, any of those type of atmospheres. The the like oh my god, yeah, it's crazy. Oh. It's yeah, it must be. It's a very intimidating atmosphere. I mean, Sanchez was a cut from a different cloth. He wasn't, you can tell, nothing really phased him. But for, I mean, talking other, you know, opponents with Nelson and stuff like, like, for example, you remember um, his third fight with Jesse James Leha, which was on Boxing After Dark, when he just, that was when he was totally in the zone and kind of having like his late career renaissance and blasted Leha and just kind of beat him up throughout the fight. Yeah. So, those like the drums and everything was so prominent ringside because I think it was kind of like a close, smaller atmosphere, and you just hear gang, 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 like really really awesome rhythms all surrounding you know and different things and as you hear these different clanging you know, all the drums that's when the overhand right comes in the first round pow and Leha just drops like a ton of bricks and you see he's totally bushwhacked in the face and Roy Jones prematurely starts yelling he's not gonna get up Leha's done this fight is over this fight is over you know. Trying to cut it off, uh, Leha would go on the last, you know, additional six rounds. Well, he was he was a super tough dude, and that of course, was a, absolutely a, a, a good series. But yeah, every usually Roy was pretty on point when he did the commentating and called the called the knockouts and yeah. shit. But Leha was tough. But yeah, man, to get back to Sanchez Nelson really quick after that fight, mm -hmm. um, you know, it was famously said that like. Because Don King told Nelson, uh, tell Sanchez, oh, this will be an easy one. And Sanchez kind of told him, if this was supposed to be easy, don't give me a hard one. But Sanchez was supposed to, um, was going to fight Juan Laporte in a rematch after this. Um, Laporte, who he had defeated earlier in early defense around 1980. But then um, 
you know, Sanchez obviously, you know, unfortunately died a few weeks later after this fight, which everybody usually knows about. So yeah, man, but Nelson to his credit, you know, he took about a year to accumulate himself, had a couple of wings. He blasted, for instance, um, guy named Irving Mitchell, who was a contender back in the eighties and nineties, uh, in the eighties mostly. And for, you know, blasted him in one round and a few other guys, but he really made his strides again when he fought Wilfredo Gomez for, um, San- Sanchez's old title. And that's when his legend was born. He went out there and knocked out Gomez in a very, very tough fight in, in Gomez's hometown. Um, and then from there, yeah, just went on to have the legendary career that, you know, made him possibly Africa's greatest fighter. That knockout of Gomez is, is great too. Like that and final. The like, of it, bro. <laughs> like Ben's like in a just. Yeah, yeah. And then you see the way, way his neck goes up and then like his face is like contorted and kind of. Yeah, he's just like, like, yeah, yeah. Azuma makes him bend in a way a human should not bend, and yeah, dude, he was a, a same super... tenacious way he fought Sanchez too, same style, same everything. Yeah, just a Young super great Melvin. fighter. <laughs> Gomez just wound up being, <clears throat> excuse me, a little bit too small, I guess, for a one twenty six. Like at one twenty two, the guy was just a fucking bastard. And, but and by like when that fight took place, that fight took place. I wanted oh, was it eighty four? Um, Gomez was probably already a step past that at that point because oh, yeah. activity. He'd been around a while, yeah. He'd pretty so. much cleaned out 122. Mm-hmm. So I mean, yeah. But regardless, you know, just another another sign of how great Azuma Nelson was. Absolutely. Um, but another actually in my first entry here, another African fighter figures into this because the very first fight that I thought of, I I don't know, I just came up in my mind because why not? Uh, was Manny Pacquiao's U.S. Absolutely. debut against mm-hmm. our boy Lalo Ledwaba. Um, Rest in peace. Yeah, dude, we've we talked about Mr. Ledwaba. We talked about Azuma Nelson, and I mean, we need to revisit the greatest African fighters episode, which I even said at the start of that episode that like we're I know this is far too condensed. We're gonna have to break it down more than this later on. Oh yeah, definitely, man. That's a that's a I mean part. You know, like it was kind of like we're summing up as best as we could, but nonetheless, um, you know, those are two, that's two fighters that we talked about on that episode far more in depth for sure. But uh, with Pacquiao and Ledwaba, I'm kind of going off memory. I don't know for sure, but if I remember correctly, it's, it was on the undercard of Oscar De La Hoya versus Javier Castillejo. And it was supposed to be Enrique Sanchez against Lalo Ledwaba. And Sanchez pulled out like he was sick or something. And it was like a week or two beforehand. And so Manny Pacquiao enters. And of course, at this time, you know, in the early 2000s and like what, 2000, 2001, this is still at the point where, you know, I bring this up every couple episodes when we do the history talk and we're talking about just access to tapes and shit like that. Point blank, dude, you're not going to be a fan that saw too many Manny Pacquiao tapes unless you were like a high level writer, pundit, some shit like that, who does tape trading in, in 2000 to 2001. You know, yes, now we know and we can go back and he was like, well, he was a lineal title holder for blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, dude, I know that now. You know that now. We can fucking go on box rec. Back in 2001, when he got a late replacement for Layla Lidwaba, most people are going, I don't know who the shit that is. I'm just saying, like, you know, most people didn't know. Most people didn't have access to the to the tapes from Thailand or the Philippines. But 
point is he goes in there and Lalo Lidwaba, who already is, you know, by this time accomplished plenty in his career and is a very high level champion and is expected to just walk through a guy named Manny Pacquiao that nobody's really ever heard of before winds up just getting blitzed, dude. You, you cannot go in against a guy like Manny Pacquiao with that kind of speed and that kind of uh, like just Southpaw punching style and like late replacement, like already the style is so difficult to deal with, but as a late replacement with zero preparation for it, it's like, that's the perfect example of what happens when you don't prepare for it and you're taken by surprise. Yeah, man. Um, like you mentioned, bro, I, you and I, like I read about Pacquiao in ring magazine and knew that he was the, you know, former champion when he knocked the, knocked the hell out of, um, Dutch, uh, Chatra Kai, I can't even try to pronounce his name right now. Dutch Boy Jim, as I know how they gave his last name, well, the person he was sponsored by, but it was um, Chachai Sasakul. Sasakul, yep, exactly. Yeah. But Pacquiao, then, you know, he was one of those guys that you kind of figured, yeah, that was a big win. I remember he was fighter of the month and he was rated like number one in the in the ratings at that point and had a little bit of a following going for him, especially after um he scored a pretty impressive knockout in his first title defense. I remember against um. I can't remember the guy's name off the top of my head, but he was a Mexican fighter who was featured on a Chavez undercard not too long before that. But anyways, after he lost his title, you kind of figured, well, there's a lot of fighters at the lower weight divisions. They kind of just disappear a little bit after a while. Right. And I didn't think anything of it, but after a few months, you started seeing Pacquiao's name again in the, on the, um, in the results in the magazines but he was there over fighting at like junior featherweight, bantamweight junior featherweight. And I'm just kind of like, oh, you know, looks like he jumped up a little bit. So you would see that, but again, not thinking much of it until, like you said, around two, I've never seen him. I've never seen him actively fight. I wasn't a tape trader. I didn't have access to all that type of stuff. You know, there wasn't any type of um, footage of him online. I just read a bunch of stuff. But when I heard that he was going to fight um, Lalo Ledwaba, that obviously got me intrigued because I had at least been reading about him. And knowing that he was a last minute replacement, I knew he wasn't kind of no type of scrub. Like he was a guy who could a legit fight and having Freddie Roach in his corner, who obviously at the time didn't have the notoriety that he has today, but still was a well-known trainer had me intrigued, but like, I'm sure you thought and no one else that I wasn't going in there thinking Pacquiao was going to win and be like, Oh yeah, this is going to be like, I wasn't, you know, not pulling no hipster shit over here. Like I thought <laughs> I was watching Ledwaba. I seen him on HBO. Like he was a very impressive fighter at that point. He had a lot of really good wins on his ledger and he was a really solid fighter. And a lot of people were considering him thinking that he had a, you know, future pound for pound potential to him. But yeah, man, Pacquiao came in there and absolutely just stomped the hell out of him, bro. It was a thumping really, really like crazy. And Ledwaba had that look on his face that many Pacquiao, um, many, Pacquiao opponents would have over the years where they just look absolutely bewildered after a few rounds. Like what yeah, the hell? They just, yeah. They just don't even, it's so yeah. Bewildered for sure. That's like a great word. It's they're just totally. They, they just look completely. They don't know. I mean, you just got a swarm of bees around you and all of a sudden your face is bloodied and destroyed. And, and that was the same thing at, you know, early Pacquiao back in the day, dude, when he was just absolutely annihilating guys, they all had that same look. Ledwaba had that look after of like four or five rounds. You see his nose bloody. You see his face bloody and puffed up. He just doesn't know what the hell is going on. And yeah. finally, he just goes down after accumulation. Jorge Alicia Julio. 
um, who was a very, very respected Bantamweight champion back in the day. Probably a little past it by the time he fought Pacquiao. But look, that fight was on the um, Tyson Lewis undercard, right? And Pacquiao blitzed him in two rounds. And look at Julio's face after the second round. His face, same thing, bloodied up, beat up. He doesn't know what the hell happened to him. No one had ever done that to him before. He had lost fights, but no one had ever just absolutely thrashed him like that. Yeah, and, and I mean, in retrospect, dude, like we probably should have seen the Barrera shit coming because like yeah. Pacquiao had already done it. And so then like, here's Barrera and it, it was the exact same shit, dude. Barrera was like, oh, this, whoa. After that first knockdown, not the, not the one that Pacquiao got dropped in because that was bullshit. But when... Oh, the knockdown, his knockdown that didn't get called? Yeah, like the... Was that yeah, yeah, early on, right? Yeah, he knocked him down, but he didn't call it a knockdown. That's right, but that was a legit knockdown. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then the one that where it was actually called, you see Barrera's face when he got dropped, and he's just kind of like, dude. You know, you yeah, already he's see all the swollen resignation. and he's just like, What the fuck? He's just you already see the resignation on him, just kind of like, and that's when he started like trying to pull some dirty stuff on Pacquiao in and low a couple of times and doing other stuff like you know, it took Eric Morales. And all of his badass glory to finally like stop the the, the storm. <laughs> what Pacquiao? Yeah, was doing. like a. I mean, I guess you would call the Maidana fight more of like a last hurrah for Morales. But even oh, so, like as far as like a great win or whatever, that was definitely a last hurrah for Morales. He like just put it all together for one last night. Fucking turned southpaw on the twelfth like a goddamn badass motherfucker and just fought his ass. And I, I mean. Ah, oh, brings a smile to my and then fucking ask fucking merchant after that. Hey, they go, do you like that shit? And these merchants just sitting there giddy, like <laughs> fucking's awesome, dude. It was like uh not even I don't even give a shit about Pacquiao losing or anything. It was just fucking fun. But oh, yeah. yeah, I mean that, that was should, that shit was incredible. And that's that was the start of Pacquiao. Like he had already had a really solid career before that. And say he had lost the Ladoava fight and kind of just disappeared after that, he still would have had a good, respectable career. He wouldn't have yeah. been remembered. Probably only hardcore guys like us today would have been talking about him. But you know, that, that was that was the start of his legend. You know, it was unfortunate at the expense of Ladoava. But imagine what would have happened if Enrique Sanchez never pulled uh, never pulled out of that fight. Yeah, I don't know, man. Yeah, Pacquiao still would have got a shot at some point another time. Probably. But. Yeah, but he, but his, you know, he really like catapulted to stardom, you know, and that that was definitely one of the first kind of steps in the U.S. to do it. Um, and the fact that it was on the Delahoya undercard on a paper. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, man. I re I remember I remember that stupid ass card too, and being all angry because I think that was the last time, if I'm not mistaken, that De La Hoya fought with top rank because fighting at the, in the what, what was that 2001 the early 2000s after you know oscar had like this thing where he would fight like a mosley on pay-per-view and now it's like a legit fight but then he fights someone like yori boy compass or castillo on pay-per-view too yeah and you're supposed to pay 67 whatever it was the price for it back then 50 60 bucks or something yeah and i i'm trying to remember if it was that fight or the well whatever it doesn't even really matter but the point is dude i remember that entire stupid ass show and just remember being like uh castillejo was like big in spain yeah and like that was it like he had he had had like a totally respectable career and it was getting shat on like unfairly but i just remember that card and everybody being mad about that card but anyway <laughs> i mean he also to his credit, too, didn't he after after losing the Oscar? Didn't he went on go on to knock out Felix Sturm? 
Yeah, yeah. No, he uh, he had, like I said, even before that, he had a totally respectable career. It's just that he, it was like he was operating kind of on the fringe of a division that was already kind of like it was top heavy. So and he wasn't getting a shot at any of the actual good names. He was just knocking off the kind of like top level European dudes, basically. Okay. And so like he had a, it, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Totally respectable career, like I said, and then went on to, you know, kick uh, Felix Sturm's ass. But in any case, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, that was at the time he was pretty bemoaned as far as being an opponent for Oscar De La Hoya because that was right about at the period where people were like, oh, he's not even a fighter anymore. He's like a part-time fighter. He's a singer. He's a this, he's a that. And so now he's fighting this guy on pay-per-view that nobody knows. And that was kind of like what pe what many people, especially in the media, felt was like the downturn for Deloitte or whatever. But, you know, whatever. Anyway, I guess the good thing that that card brought us was Pacquiao. I mean, absolutely, bro. I've made a Star Wars born. Pacquiao has now become one of the greatest fighters in history. Um, just an absolute badass, a legendary figure. And one of those guys now that like a generational fighter that people will be talking about decades and decades and decades, hundred years from now, whatever, if this world's still around then, um, you know, hate to be the Debbie Downer over here. But I'm just saying. <laughs> it's a long fucking bet. Yeah. But, um, yeah, man. Pacquiao is just one of those guys, you know what I mean? That like, we'll be talking about her in our old age and generations from there. Like, yeah. Pacquiao is incredible, but that was the start of it. And, um, poor Ledwaba had to be the one that be the recipient of it but another one for me and this one I've never actually seen the fight but I, I read about it when it when it happened and it's always just been like holy shit because this is the definition of the last minute replacement was when a fighter by the name of Isidro Garcia fought for the w, um, WBO flyweight championship against Jose Lopez back in 1999 and what makes that so interesting is that um, uh, excuse me. Well, um, what makes this so interesting is that Garcia was the last minute replacement while he was sitting in the audience um, for a fighter by the name of um, was it Fernando Montiel? No, it was Alejandro Montiel, not Fernando. Yeah. Alejandro Montiel. Yeah, excuse me. So Alejandro Montiel, Fernando Montiel, they're brothers. And Alejandro Montiel was a good fighter. Not as good as Fernando. Fernando was the one that went on to have like a really, really solid career and before he got absolutely obliterated by Nonito Donaire. But um, got his head dented, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus Christ. I'm, I mean, that was like a visual I'm still trying to like not remember from way back, but... Um... Well, there you go. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, um... Anyways, though, what makes this fight so interesting, Alejandro Montiel, I believe it was, he had some kind of, he had to pull out of the fight in hours beforehand. He was just in there, something that I think he was either having swelling or something going on, but it was something to the effect that he couldn't go on the fight. They wouldn't allow him to, so he had to pull out. And Isidro Garcia was sitting in the audience over there eating a hot dog, minding his business, just trying to, you know, watch the show. So they came up to him with a proposition, hey, it's the very last minute, would you want to fight for the WBO title? And he's kind of like, I, you know, like I'm over here eating and chilling, like, you sure? And they're like, well, yeah. So they brought him into the room. He had to borrow some trunks, borrow boots, all this other type of stuff going on. And I believe I was reading too, is that they had to grab a mouthpiece and that it wasn't 
wasn't, you know, made or anything like that. So they boiled it in a pot of coffee, which he detests. And he doesn't drink, he didn't drink coffee at all. So they had to boil in a pot of coffee. They made him, you know, put it in like that. And that made him like, you know, almost sick. <laughs> and then went in there and boxed a 12 round decision to uh, become WBO champion. Yeah, dude, that's crazy. I mean, that's a wild story. Yeah. And I know he was overweight. Like it wasn't like he was weighing 112 for that fight. But I mean, Antonio, um, Jose Lopez was probably over, was already after the weigh in himself too, had put on weight. So they probably just said, whatever. Dude, that's crazy. It's, I mean, crazy that they could even find somebody that, that with, like, you know, within a stone's throw. Because we, we know uh, people who are like promoters and managers and matchmakers and shit now who are like, anybody, if you just weigh under 150 pounds and you're within 100 miles, <laughs> like, get, and you can get here tomorrow, anybody, you know? But that's pretty funny. But I mean, it's happened a few times in boxing history where, like, crazily enough, where there's been a person in the audience where they plucked him out of there at the very, very last minute and said, Hey man, we need you right now. And the guy's kind of like, I, are you sure? Really? Kind of here with my girl or I'm doing this or do you need me? And the I was like, yeah, well, dude, well, how about this amount of money? Will that do you in? Guys like, okay. Throws his hot dog away and goes running over and gets the ready to start changing in. Like only in boxing. It's nuts, dude. It's absolutely nuts. And it, it will in the fact, like you think about like uh, trying to, I mean, that, that shit's like the type of shit that would be too extreme in a movie about like football or something like that. Call up somebody and get them to play in the blah, blah, you know, Super Bowl or some shit last No, no boxing's the only sport happen. where someone can be sitting on their ass eating a bag of chips and drinking a beer and get called in a meeting and be like, hey, can you come in for a fight? And they're going to do it. They don't do that for football. They're not going to do that for any other thing. And that's what happened. Like, I mean, because credit, like Garcia was the type of fighter that always kept himself in shape and everything like that. And he was undefeated, not, to, uh, not for that fight. He had lost a fight that I point to a fighter by the name of Sammy Stewart, who was a very tough journeyman back in the, in the 90s around the flyweight junior bantamweight divisions. And I actually remember watching that fight on TV. I was on like FSN or something. Garcia got stopped on cuts. But um, yeah. You know, for him to go in there and get catapulted to become WBO champion. And in 1999, WBO, I still wouldn't say it was really well respected in, a, in the U.S. side, right? More so just in the lower weight divisions. It meant more, in, obviously, in Europe on that, yeah. that side of the pond. But this still, having a belt, whether it was the WBO or whatever it was back then, still was going to get you recognized. And being flyweight champion, that would definitely get you more dates and more recognition as opposed to being like, wbo i don't know heavyweight cruiserweight champion or something or super metal you know what i mean and so um yeah were you gonna yeah 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 no i was just saying yeah like the with the wbo so then that ended up actually happening with his career because after he won that fight he had a couple of couple of title defenses lost it to fernando montiel alejandro's brother and then still had some high profile fights before his career rounded out that's pretty wild that, you know, one could even come by any sort of world title. I mean, yeah, like you said, it was kind of fringe at that point, especially like in a, in a division down that far for a lot of people, you know, like it, like the WBO would have been like starting to get recognized or more recognized in a division like heavyweight or sure. even light heavyweight or something like that. But way down there, even so, regardless of how much credit somebody's going to get for it, it's still pretty wild to come across. A, oh, it, a it's absolutely like wild. Like, but the heavyweight division, I'm going to say by 1999, uh, 
even then the WBO still was kind of like, meh, no one really worried about it. It wasn't until I'm going to say the Klitschko brothers, even in their early, in their early phases, like when Vitaly Klitschko became WBO champion, it wasn't like people were hollering and clambering for him for unification fights or anything like that. He had beat Herbie Hyde for the belt. Yeah. And then when Chris Bird had beat him, that's when, when Bird became champion that was, you know, aired on HBO that got attention. Bird was a last minute replacement. That's actually a good one to bring up too. Because Bird replaced um, Razor Ruddick in that fight, who probably would have got absolutely obliterated by Kalichko, yeah. considering you know when it was supposed to take place. But Bird, who was losing that fight completely, you know, I mean, he was competitive and he was landing here and there and landing punches to the body, but he was getting out boxed comprehensively. What was it? Kalichko tore his uh, rotator cuff or something? Uh, yeah, he had some sort of shoulder injury. And yeah, yeah. And then Bird became champion, so. It was around that time, and that's when the WBO started gaining traction because Vladimir became champ. He started getting featured on HBO all the time, and yada, yada. Yeah. Well, there were a couple, like, right around that same time, there were a couple of other champions and other divisions that were, like, for instance, uh, Darius Mikulczewski held the, yes. w, held the WBO light heavyweight title for, like, a number of years. And, I mean, uh, that's its own podcast. But, but I mean, you know, like, and then I think what really helped solidify it beyond the heavyweight was that when Bernard Hopkins won all four titles at middleweight from Howard Eastman, like he, you know, unified from Howard Eastman, who I think at the time was also the British uh, middleweight champion. And basically, I think that that helped solidify because Bernard Hopkins was like, you know, I wanted all four of the titles. So now there's no, now I'm truly undisputed or whatever. Was Oscar WBO champ? What's that? Was Oscar W Oscar was WBO champ in middleweight at that point, right? Didn't he beat Storm? Yeah, but I mean like before oh, that. Before uh, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Well, he's, okay. But yeah. then and then also too, um you can also mention I think Harry um, Simon too. I want I want to say Harry, was, yeah, was Harry Simon and also um Mikachevsky became undisputed champion at light heavyweight before Hopkins did at middleweight. The problem was, like you mentioned, since he fought over in Germany in the other side of the pond, um, he, it, you know, it didn't really, didn't really gain that much traction because remember he beat Virgil Hill uh, to unify the belts. I don't know if that was for the undisputed belts. I think Roy Jones might have been champion at that point too. Yeah. So it wasn't fully undisputed. Yeah, it wasn't Te- fully technically. Undisputed. I, I, yeah, I forgot Roy was already up at that point. Well, and and technically because of that, technically Mikulczewski, I mean, dude, it's messy. But technically, so Mikulczewski was the lineal champion. And uh, and that's what made it so messy was that Roy Jones went over and unified the other belts, but Mikulczewski was technically the lineal champion. Mm-hmm. So it's like, but then what do you do? You know, I, well, whatever. Anyway, like I said, its own fucking podcast. But um, let's see, I had a my list of last minute replacements here. Let me let me let me go back to 1914. And this is a fairly famous last minute replacement that also involves, <laughs> yeah, it's, it also involves a world title. There were fighting brothers, Joe and George Chip. Um, you know, I mean, like they're, they're pretty obscure. I think even among like the history people, like you don't really hear too much about George Chip. Don't really hear too much about Joe Chip. And you don't really hear that much about Al McCoy either. Um, they say that, Al McCoy and right around that a uh, couple years before that uh you know the kid um kid McCoy Charles Kid McCoy you know those two helped make that kind of 
McCoy last name famous in boxing. But Al McCoy was actually, a lot of people don't know this little tidbit of trivia. Al McCoy was the first ever Southpaw world champion, period, when he won this title. Um, he wound up defeating George Chip because Joe Chip, George's brother, was scheduled to fight Al McCoy. Joe wound up having to pull out because of an injury or something like that. So George Chip stepped in to fight Al McCoy. And so, in any case... Uh, Al McCoy winds up defeating George Chip and taking the middleweight title. And it wound up being somewhat controversial at the time because some like right around this time, I'll try not to go into too much of a rant or, a, you know, a, a seg or a whatever here. But in any case, uh, right around this time when different states were wrangling for whether or not championship fights could even be fought in that state, whether or not championship fights would be 10 rounds, 12 rounds, 15 rounds, et cetera, because different states had different rules at different times. And so some states didn't even allow decision decisions and fights would only end either by knockout or it would be a no contest if it didn't, you know, wouldn't go to a decision, et cetera, et cetera. And so right around this time, there would sometimes be like arguments as far as like whether or not a fight was legit or whether or not a champion was lit legit. And that's what wound up happening here is because of the late replacement and because of where it took place, there was a lot of controversy in the newspapers, the newspapers not wanting to declare Al McCoy middleweight champion. Uh, but in any case, it, it goes down in the history books and he's the first ever Southpaw champion. Yeah, bro. The the fight before what happened beforehand too was that they said um that they asked the chip to step in because they figured that McCoy wasn't in his class and it was just gonna be an easy win from whatever it might be. But yeah, it was one of the I believe that um <clears throat> McCoy was actually trained by um Rocky Marciano's trainer over there. Um Charlie Goldman. Charlie Goldman, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, uh or and now I'm trying, now you got me, I'm thinking it was Al Singer, McCoy, maybe one other champion. I think McCoy was his first champion, I want to say. No, I'm sorry, he had, he had five when you include Marciano. So yeah, I'm missing one, but yes, McCoy, Al Singer. Anyway, yeah, go ahead, but. Yeah, I want to say McCoy was his first champion, right? I, yeah, I'd have to look at the, at the list, but yeah, I think so. But yeah, right around that time, man, that's when the middleweight division started getting super mud. I mean, super middleweight, excuse me. That's when the middleweight division started getting muddled as any type of division, because like you said, as you just alluded to, most people, there was always these different jurisdictions, different states that wanted to consider, have their own world champion, and they had no problem not recognizing a fight if they didn't like what, what the decision really was and saying, okay, if it was controversial or whatever, and they're going to say, okay, nah, this guy's going to yeah. be For example... Um, there was a really controversial fight one time between middleweight champion Johnny Wilson and challenger Brian Downey, where um, I, I forgot what, the, the full details of it, but I think Wilson got dropped and Downey might have hit him when he was down and Wilson couldn't continue, yada, yada, yada. But it was a fight that Downey it looked like he was winning and in control of. And so a lot of people said Downey should have won by knockout. Other people said Wilson should have won by disqualification. So a couple of a couple of states recognized Downey as champion. Most states still recognize Wilson as champion. They ended up having a rematch that Wilson won, so it made that point moot. But 
still that's just to give you like some context of what you were just kind of alluding to that's what goes down yeah, it, it wasn't always that clear and so that's why when you know when people make claims like the eight world champion or the eight divisions or oh absolutely or not there it was, was only, so muddled when there was only course. one champion per division and i, and I don't want to i don't want to be that guy that's like um I, uh, actually you know every time somebody says that mm -hmm. but i i kind of just want to be like i don't dude it was all there were a lot of times during these golden periods of boxing where it was not clear where there was a lot of like dispute in newspapers and shit like that i mean in a, and there are a number of diff, uh famous fights where shit you know the the welterweight champion championship uh changed hands from joe walcott to uh dixie kid yeah dixie kid and then it gets given back when they figure out the referee the bet on dixie kid yeah. or then you know yeah. the light the light heavyweight championship gets transferred to battling seeky and then actually the ref's like ah, actually i think i'm gonna disqualify him and then the mm -hmm. crowd speaks up and it says fuck you ref and the ref's like ah, actually okay give it to him think about like you know these are the golden periods of boxing and think about if some shit like that happened today you know what i mean the crowd imagine imagine what would happen today right if yeah the Admiral, crowd talks example, the referee into reversing a decision like there would be fucking anarchy bro imagine if a, if a crowd witnessed ad wall gas mexican joel rivers where um the yeah ref, like the ref like carrying ref, him and picking shit. up wall gas who's completely unconscious from a legal blow and Walt and rivers laying there clutching his groin and looking up at the ref like what the hell are you doing you know, yeah, you know that famous photo where he's like pulling walk up and you see rivers a poor guy just looking up like that like you know yeah like, dude oh. he's like laid out like yeah wall gas is gone because they landed a right hand that knocked Walgas out, and Walgas landed a low blow simultaneously that dropped Rivers, and they both collapsed on top of each other. And then the yeah, referee Walgas wins by knockout, hopped on a train, and got out of town. Yeah, imagine some shit like that happening now. It's just so difficult to imagine. I mean, it's not. No, hold on. Let me rephrase that. It's not that difficult to imagine it happening, honestly. But it's that like the idea that it happened kind of like just unchallenged. And that and unchecked, and that it just goes down in history, like whatever. That's what I'm saying. Is that's that's the whole crazy part of this, you know? It's yeah, man. It's absolutely insane. And another part too, like the muddle, even a decade or a couple of decades, you know, about a decade later in the 30s, right? Because you have um, that whole muddle division, how messed up it was before everything got kind of settled up with Tony Zale back then. But like. How many guys were claimed in title claimants to the midway championship? You know what I mean? You had Al Hostek, you had Solly Krieger, you had Sephardino Garcia, you had Marcel Till, you had this one, you had that one. There were Gorilla Jones, Lou Brulio. There were so many guys at that point that were champion at some at one point or another or different places were calling this one champion. And it was insane. Yeah. And, and then you, you yeah, you bring the, the Europeans into look it. it up, you got to get on there. The headache looking at that. Yeah, you bring the European claimants into it and it got even worse. Like it got mm -hmm. even like, oh shit. So I mean, it's yeah, it it wasn't that clear. And that's why I don't want to be that guy, but I also want to make sure people understand the full scope of history that it's complex and that it wasn't always like, you know, back when there was only one champion per division. Nah, dude, there was a lot of claimants sometimes. And I mean, anyway, yeah. Point being, uh, with this whole Al McCoy George Chip situation as you kind of alluded to Al McCoy was thought of before the fight is they were saying, Oh, he's not in the same class. Well, Al McCoy was also, they say, uh, the person who the term, the real McCoy is coined after 
because they say that Al McCoy used to literally fake being sick or fake being shot, you know, like not good, punch drunk, whatever, or would say that he's not in good shape. And then he'd come in and just absolutely beat the shit out of an opponent because he was in good shape. He wasn't sick. He's not shot. He would just fake it. And, and so that's what they, uh, they say that they termed, they coined the term the real McCoy because they would say, so which McCoy are we going to get tonight? Are we going to get the real McCoy? And so then that's when they started saying, oh, you know, this, this shit's legit. This shit's the real McCoy. So in any case, that's, that's what they say anyway. Yeah, man. And regardless of anything, that is a huge upset. One that you just got, you mentioned, it doesn't get mentioned at all because it did happen over a hundred years ago. And with everything that's happened in boxing history, it kind of does fall under the cracks because it, it wasn't like full on claiming it was a middleweight title change definitely. And it should be recognized as such in history, but there was differences of opinion, everyone, all this other stuff going on. And, but it it was big. This is like, and that was the first one where you can really um, use a mention last minute replacement, definite, definite last minute replacement. And it kind of like backfired on everybody because they thought it would just be like an easy layup. Yeah, for sure. It that's especially I, I would imagine the the betters and this is how back in 1914 a large portion of the purses and the money that's going in and out of these clubs and shit like that is coming through the betters and I would imagine that you know man that shit was a messy messy situation. Oh, I'm sure everyone kind of sat there with their jaws dropped when it happened because no one expected that they would just thought old Alan McCoy would get his ass whooped. You know what I mean? And you're talking to and I'm sure if there was footage of it, you'd probably see Chip in there probably looking very calm, nonchalant, not thinking anything twice of it. And all of a sudden, blammo. Yeah. <laughs> and it should, it's worth noting, too, that they did, uh, they had, did, they definitely did fight after this, too, you know. Yeah, they fought twi- twice after that. Um, I think both went to, like, newspaper decisions yeah. or no decisions or whatever. But it wasn't for the title. No, yeah, it wasn't for the title because at that point the title started kind of playing musical chairs. Uh, yeah, for a little while after that until uh, the early 20s. So, yeah. But another one <clears throat> that is worth mentioning, obviously, and now we're moving up over to, um, to 1969. And this goes with another guy who's a very, very... Um, popular fighter back in the day he's a hall of famer subsequently from it and associated with the mike tyson custom auto camp but this is a jose torres's last fight and it's a guy against a guy by the name of charlie devil green who i want to say he was story. a contender he would he was a tough guy he was just you know um gatekeeper so to speak you know a veteran but at that point he was only 10 and 5 he didn't have a tough career but literally plucked out of the crowd the day of the fight by um, Teddy Brenner because a fighter by the name of Jimmy Ralston, who was a contender at the time, uh, pulled out at the very, very last minute claiming arm injury, claiming some kind of injury. He didn't want to go through with the fight. So probably money-wise or some shit. But regardless of what it was, Charlie Green was in the audience that day eating, whether it was a hot dog or a donut or whatever story you want to hear. He was eating something and just kind of hanging out. Wasn't expecting the fight at all. <laughs> and Brenner came up to him and asked him, you know, basically, hey, it's the very, very last minute. He's talk, he talks about it in his book, if only, um, in Brenner's uh, memoir book. What was it called? If Only This Ring Was Square? Yeah. Yeah. So he definitely talked about this fight in the book because it is, a, it's, it is pretty crazy. He plucked Green out of the audience at the very last minute, offered him a purse, 
Green um, apparently said, um, was quoted as I've read, he said something to the effect of, hey, you're going to pay for my hot dog as well. And, you know, deal was struck. They got in there and Green actually dropped uh, Torres twice in the first round before getting stopped in a wild shootout. It wound up being, yeah, Torres' last last fight of his career and convinced him to to hang up the gloves. I mean, yeah. I think that uh, Torres, who who worked with Customato and also employed, you know, a really similar style. Like I, to me, that's one of the weirder things. And I know that trainers have kind of like their own style that they like to teach and shit like that. But the peekaboo but, thing that he did with everybody. Yeah, but to me, that's so weird that like you would take such a unique style in a style that really does not work for everybody and mm-hmm. try to make everybody use it. Like, I don't know. To me, that's I just like Joe Frazier. Yeah, exactly. Like Joe Frazier, whose son was a perfectly good amateur until under Joe the got tutelage of George Benton. It yeah. probably would have been an incredible pro on, I don't know, you know, under the I tutelage. Mean, yeah, better than he was anyway. Absolutely. Absolutely. And instead, he wasn't made for doing the style. ducking and diving, trying to look like Joe Frazier, emulating his dad. Yep. Yeah, dude, he wasn't made for that style. No, no. And neither was um, Kevin Rooney. Tyson or for, or for that weight, probably. He probably wasn't made for heavyweight. Absolutely weight no. There was no way he was a heavyweight. You saw the difference against Holmes. It was ridiculous. Oh, but right. um, yeah, so sad. But yeah, that, that's the type of thing. Like, D'Amato had, don't get me wrong, you know, he, he's a legend in the sport and has his own acclaim and all that. But I like, know, dude, it's a, it's a sin to try to say anything cross about Lamato, to, about Customato. Yeah, right? yeah, right. Seriously. But, but, you know, the truth of the matter is that D'Amato completely was freaked out by anyone who had a pulse in the heavyweight division while Floyd Patterson was champion. And thus, anyone who was really good, whether it be Eddie Machen, Zora Foley, Sonny Liston, uh, Cleveland Williams, the list goes on and on. If you could really fight, you are obviously mob tied, and thus you couldn't get next to Floyd. <laughs> so, yeah, dude. Yeah, Tom McNeely. He, oh, he's not in the mob. All right, you can fight Floyd because he couldn't fight. Cut shoe Harris, Roy Cut shoe Harris. Same well, thing. Yeah, and know? well, and didn't Tom McNeely put him down too? Like, so yes. I mean, almost I got Harris, him, buddy. Harris dropped him. Uh, Pete Rademacher, who was making his pro debut, dropped him. Um, <laughs> You know, the list goes on and on. So probably it's for the best that he's a very, very strange relationship. It was just it was just the way he just had like this wild out anyone who could actually fight anyone who like really, really was a good contender was automatically mobbed up and had all kinds of issues. And they go on this wild rant that just like, you know, people today would be looking like, dude, you serious? Yeah. And (laughs) imagine him with a Twitter handle. Dude, and I and he just strikes me, especially now in retrospect, as somebody as as they say, thou doth protest too much. Like, dude, if you're constantly screaming about the mob and constantly screaming about corruption, it's kind of just it's almost like drawing attention to yourself. Like, mm, exactly. But I don't know, buddy. He but, was, like you mentioned, he was that type of guy that had everybody had to have that type of same style of peekaboo. Whether, yeah, but it doesn't work that, for everybody. But, it worked for Mike Whatever. Tyson. It works for Floyd Patterson. Well, so he's trained styles, world so. champions and I haven't. So I won't argue yeah, yeah, too yeah. hard, but but regardless, it's, that's always kind of been strange to me. But Torres was only 33 in that fight. You know what I mean? And he didn't have a long career. They didn't have a tough career. Sure, yeah. you know, um, Florentino Fernandez, the monster punch that he was, knocked him out. But Torres never really took a ton of punishment in his career. He didn't have really taxing fights. His fights with Dick Tiger, for that matter, he was more outboxed than he was beat up in them. So yeah, 
I, th- I think one of his big downfalls is he didn't have much of a punch. Like he didn't have a real big punch. Mm-hmm. And so he wound up having to rely on grit. <laughs> he wound up having to rely on skill. And so, you know, he, that was probably, well, not so much his downfall, I guess, but just that that was, I think one of the reasons why he was unable to really get over the hump. He was a very good champion, but not a really great champion. So Nothing this was wrong the fight with that. Kind of convinced him. This was the fight that convinced him. Exactly. Yeah, this was the fight where he was just like, "Nah, you know, if this guy's almost taking me out, I gotta go." And he but, wound up becoming a really good writer after that too. Oh, incredible writer! And he was a really, really nice guy too. I had the I had the pleasure of meeting him a few times in my early years going to the Hall of Fame, and he was one of those guys along nice with Aaron Pryor and a bunch of other people that like he was there every year. Yeah, couldn't have been more accommodating and nice. Yeah, I don't. I it's tough to see any photos of him just like without a smile on his face. Oh yeah, him and his wife. Oh, they were both mostly like jovial, like happy shit. people. Yeah, they were just really cool. But he did play a very, very big part afterwards. You would always see him, um, in Mike Tyson's corner. He wrote that really interesting, um, the biography on Mike, which I have a copy of, and some other stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and he also played a big role in. Uh, he liked worked with a lot of kids in the New York area mm-hmm. and in boxing and stuff like that. He he did something in boxing like his whole life, yeah, pretty much. So I mean the the guy was. Uh, Is he a Hall of Famer? <sighs> Dude, I mean it's like Pastrano and. I know, I know, man. You're kind of cutting hairs. I almost think it's just his name and who he was associated more get elevated him more so than his actual career. I don't yeah, know. like I don't want to, I don't want to trash him because we just spent like a couple minutes like speaking nicely about him. I don't want to take that back, but of well, and I mean, just I don't think being truthful is speaking badly about him. But yeah, it's it's a thin compared to, I mean, especially at light heavyweight, it's it's kind of a thin ledger, dude. And especially during that era too, man, that was an era of really deep era and a lot of yeah. solid, you know, great champions around then. Torres was just kind of, yeah. Cus's matchmaking yeah. was not helpful <laughs> to the hall of fame ledger for sure. Um, let's see. One that I wanted to say mostly not, not because uh, I actually didn't know about this. I'll bring it up just because it's a really good guide if you want to talk about last-minute replacements, and a couple of these are in the article. But Michael Rosenthal for ESPN back in the day wrote an article about last-minute replacements and matchmakers having to deal with last-minute replacements. Um, but I didn't know about this fight until I read this article, and I, I just didn't even know about this because I figured that this guy would have told me because I've spoken to him a number of times and don't know him super well, but know him well enough that i just figured this would have been one of the stories he told me but a dude named eric bonilla uh so don chargin who was a matchmaker and promoter in southern california for years and years and years i mean a, basically a southern california legend worked at the olympic auditorium you know i mean etc like the, he's a very well-known matchmaker uh in southern california so in 1978 a fighter named Eric Bonilla, who was pretty well known on the amateur scene, but was, uh, you know, more of a kind of like journeyman type of pro, to be honest, he was not a very high level pro whatsoever. Um, But in any case, uh, the reason why this stuck out to me is because through working with Steve two pound Forbes, with, uh, you know, two pound sports and stuff like that, doing the local boxing thing in Portland, uh, Eric Bonilla is actually one of the guys that's friends with Steve and has helped in, in, uh, at some of these shows 
knows just a ton of people in boxing. If you're, if you've been in boxing for a long time, especially on the West coast, you probably know who Eric Bonilla is. He wound up going on to work with Don Chargin and, uh, I want I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was something like Don Chargin like adopted him or like something like there was some sort of like a relationship there where they wound up being like family or something. I can't remember exactly what it was. He told me one time. But anyway, back in 1978 uh, at, at uh, he's at like at lightweight welterweight or something like that. And Eric is going up and down and wait because he's fighting whomever is a journeyman. This dude named Erlais Perez who uh, they called Cubanito. Cubanito Perez uh, was making his pro debut and Don Chargin needed somebody like their, their fighter had fallen out. And so Eric Bonilla was in his last year of high school. <laughs> they call up and they somehow get a hold of Eric Bonilla. He goes up to LA from San Diego and uh, fights Erles Perez and loses a decision. But then, you know, it's kind of like, I think it was like about a month, month and a half later, uh, Don Chargin needs another opponent for Erles Perez and winds up calling down to Eric Bonilla's high school to get his phone number, gets his phone number from his high school, calls him up and asks him to come up. He says, I need you again to fight another opponent. And so Eric Bonilla winds up going up to LA and as he's sitting in the dressing room waiting, I guess he says, all right, who's the opponent? And Don Chargin won't tell him, but he's grinning. And so Eric Bonilla figures it out that it's Erles Perez again you know, and that he's fighting him as an opponent again, and he goes out and he gets knocked out by him in one round. So, I mean, again, not a, not a world title tale or anything like that, but the, it stuck out to me just because I, I know Eric and I'm just oh, yeah, surprised yeah. he never told me that story. <laughs> That's awesome, man. It's like the type of thing when you can go back and then like you pull a, pull a stunt like that. It's pretty cool that's the kind of story where if i did that i'd be telling every i'd be telling yeah, I'd tell everybody, everybody i met yeah, shit, i'd have that i'd have that on a business card <laughs> you tell everyone and everyone hey you like just walk up to random people and just tell them the type of story what you just pulled right there yeah dude shit's great shit but you know um, uh, it, here's a question for me was do you remember bobby boy velardez was he was, yeah. he was he a last minute replacement against um yes. against ranchero ramirez oh i don't know i honestly don't know Juan Carlos Ramirez. Um, reason why I ask is just because I almost feel like he might have been. Because I, I remember Lampley telling the story that, like, because he was still in high school, and I think he called his principal or said something that they let him know that he was going to be at it, that, you know, who he was going to be fighting, what was going to happen that week, and then he ended up scoring an upset. I'm not sure if he was a, a, um, a last minute replacement or not, but I, I honestly don't know. But here is one, though, that was a last-minute replacement. We're going to the heavyweight division in the 80s, my favorite decade. Um, think you know where I'm going with this. <laughs> Bone Crusher Smith, Tim Witherspoon. Yeah. Oh, famous. Just, just stop taking the last replacements, man. Just stop taking the last replacements. I, you know, it, it's in a nutshell, too, because, like, Withers, that was the last like nail in the coffin for Witherspoon in terms of like his prime and Don King's absolutely just wrangling his career and spoon with him. But at the same time, Witherspoon has always said that he didn't care about losing that fight too, because he knew that since he lost, um, he was done with Don King. And so at that point it was almost worth it, but that's really sad, you know, to think about that too. Yeah, because dude. Witherspoon for our, that lost generation 
was one of the most talented fighters out of that group. All right. They had talented fighters in there. We've talked about it before on yeah, the show. Dude. He really, he really was. And that's what sucks is especially because he, you could see it and it was just that he would like get out of shape. And yeah. so like you could see because he wasn't motivated, you know, and understandably yeah. so. If we were going through something like that, I probably wouldn't be motivated either, you know. Yeah. Um, but you could tell well, man, like, good jab, booming good right jab. Hand. Yeah. He out jab, he was out jabbing Larry Holmes. He was throwing, he was catching Holmes and everything. He beat arguably beat Holmes in that fight. A lot and of people still think so, yeah. Absolutely. And Witherspoon didn't have 20 fights at that point. Like he put on the fight of a lifetime. I'm sorry, none of the other heavyweights from that era were gonna do that to Holmes at that point. And um, Spoon was just one of, yeah, so, but he was screwed around, all right? You know, yeah, he was going through a lot. Don King was just absolutely just destroying it with, like, for all the, Don King messed with everybody. Don't get me wrong. I wasn't, you know, he messed with everybody in that era. Whether you're a heavyweight, lightweight, flyweight, didn't matter. He was going to take some money out of it. Six decades, man. Six decades, exactly, man. Thank you for that tweet, kill that. Um, He, uh, for like for whatever reason he almost took like special pleasure in messing with tim it seemed like the worst you know the worst thing he did to him obviously the one that they would deflate anybody and obviously deflated witherspoon was the bruno fight you know witherspoon went out there um bruno was a huge 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 massive you know favorite um in his country and everybody loves him the guys a god out in, you know in england and witherspoon went to his backyard really really bruising fight he was supposed to make close to a million dollars over 900,000 at least or more than that. And then King swindled him so badly that he didn't even make a hundred K like imagine all of that, everything you did and you were being promised, you're going to make a really, this was going to be the big fight. This is the one you're going to be making money. Bruno made over a million dollars because he wasn't involved with King and every, you know, when his hand was made his deal, Bruno made well over a million dollars. He was all set. He had nothing to worry about. He lost the fight, but whatever, who gives a shit at that point when you got all your money, Witherspoon got nothing out of that. So he goes into this fight now with the promise against in a rematch with Tony Tubbs, another guy who had a lot of talent at that point, but just wasted it because of various reasons, mostly drugs at that point. But it was a rematch that nobody wanted, but this was Don King. He was just playing chess, picking and choosing whatever he wanted. So Witherspoon was promised if he wins this fight, he gets the, he gets the chance at Mike Tyson because they were doing the HBO tournament at that point. And this is why this fight was televised. And so last minute, Tubbs claims an injury, whatever it may be. There was no injury. Tubbs probably just bullshitted something out of it. But whatever it was, Tubbs pulls out. And enters Bone Crusher Smith at the very last minute. Bone Crusher Smith at that point was, you know, a mid-level contender. Not a really skillful guy compared to the other heavyweights at that era. But a strong guy. Very, very strong. Very big, clump, you know, clubbing. Gave Larry Holmes a pretty good fight before he got stopped. Um, knocked out Buster Douglas early in his career. You know, it was match tough. It was always match tough early on. But he was also a guy that already that Witherspoon had already beat and beat pretty comprehensively. It wasn't really it was a close fight. So him coming in as a last minute replacement, it was almost anticlimactic that Witherspoon should beat him again. But instead, um, in a fight that's almost kind of surreal to watch because Witherspoon clearly is not trying or it just looks like he's in a zombie out of it. Bone Crusher Smith just comes out there and yeah, kind of as his monkey or is just beats the hell out of Witherspoon quickly and stops him quick. Yeah. It, it, it looks like a combination of Witherspoon being like overwhelmed, but then the moment he realizes he's overwhelmed, he's like, ah, fuck it. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. He just kind of resigns to his fate and just kind of goes down and doesn't really care. And then you get that crazy um, post fight of, 
Smith with his eyes bulging out of his head, running around with his hands up, you know, and that kind of came his thing. <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah, it was, uh, that was that era, especially, you know, um, I think that it leads to, we've talked about it before. We've done an entire podcast about it before, but that the switching of the titles and just the way that uh, everybody was partying and nobody was really able to, to stay consistent and stuff like that. It leads to that era getting discounted quite a bit, but there were some really good fighters during that era. And they really talented. wasn't Don King treating them like crap and he didn't give a damn. He treated them like hell. He had them, he had them all under his weight. And because of that, he didn't care who won or lost because he promoted all of them. He couldn't give a damn. And it was just easy for him, you know, and he had HBO in his pocket at that point, and he had yeah. whatever else in his pocket. So if he told them, hey, I'm going to give you Tim Witherspoon, Tony Tubbs, no one wants to see that fight again. No one really wants you, man. Who wants, wants to watch that rematch? You know, like, the, I'm not going to say the first fight was bad. It actually wasn't um, terrible, considering. But, like, it wasn't a rematch anyone was clamoring for. Absolutely not. But they were still going to pick it up because it was a part of that tournament that Don was promoting, where he was making all the money on it. And everyone was making nothing. And the only person that he wanted to put his claws in at that point was Mike Tyson. And he couldn't do it during the tournament, even though there's that famous photo of him holding Mike up, you know, cradling him while Mike, after Mike knocked out Trevor Burbick. Don wasn't able to get his claws into Mike until after um, Jimmy Jacobs passed away. Uh, What was that around 87, 88 or whatever it was. Yeah. So you know, it was until then Don had all his middle and heavyweights around that he was just kind of, you know, playing chess with. But it's sad, man, because Witherspoon had so much potential and you really watch it too, bro. After we're like in the early nineties, in the mid nineties, when he had that slight resurgence where, you know, he gets back on HBO and he like absolutely just throttled Al Cole for a um, comprehensive decision. And then he knocks the hell out of Jorge Luis Gonzalez. And then he has um, his fight with Ray Mercer afterwards, which could have gone either way. And it's like, you see that and you're just kind of like, you know, man, because all that BS he won with King, all those years wasted from like, because that fight with, um, with Bone Crusher happened in what, 86? So 87, 88, 89, 90, 91, like a good seven years. Like he was still fighting. Don't get me wrong. He still had a few fights here and there, whatever. But like, he was basically blackballed out of being out of, you know, the upper echelon of the division, echelon, whatever. So yeah, it's just sad, man. Weatherspoon's a tragic case out of that group. Yeah, dude, it's unfortunate because, and he also he also did the same shit that Ray Mercer did in the early two thousands, where he had a handful of fights and was trying to come back and like you know get a title shot and just mm-hmm. you know Ray Mercer got a lot farther than he did. He actually got pretty close uh, with the Klitschko shot at Vladimir Klitschko. But, you know, obviously, man, that was kind of sad because it looked because there were actually moments in that fight where Mercer was out jabbing Klitschko. Yes, I mean, he marked up Klitschko's eye, man. Yeah. But then I remember when he got dropped and he got dropped hard on his face and I never seen Mercer get dropped before. He he caught him with that hook off the jab, dude. I remember it like he just like there's the jab hook that like he just didn't even see. And I remember it was like his legs were just not there. Like he went to take a step and he's like, ooh, ooh. And he just went on his face, right? 
Yeah, it was, dude. That was, yeah. I, I don't know why I remember that so well, but I do. It was a dramatic shit. knockdown, I man. I mean, it was like a hard knockdown. And then he got up, and I remember this too, because at the end of the round, I think he went, woo, or something like that. Yeah, like he was, dude, because you, not that many people hurt Ray Mercer. You know? Well, like, that was you, the first time, man. I mean, most guys, like, not, it's rare for a chin to really go like that. You know what I, I think mean? Holyfield Mercer, knocked him down too. He did. He did, but yeah, it yeah. wasn't like that hard. Like he yeah, yeah, no, not like that. Like it was yeah. like accumulation kind of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that shit was. Yeah, dude, that was a. I damn, I'm probably about to go find out. <laughs> I haven't seen in a long time. Well, I mean, but, especially considering the punches that Witherspoon landed on Mercer. There's like the the guy on on YouTube, Jeff Jackson, who makes highlight videos. There's a he made a highlight video of that one. And if you watch one of those rounds, you hear you hear Larry Merchant like he like he just saw a hurricane come because you just hear uh, you see Witherspoon with an overhand right that visibly rocks Mercer like he almost knocks him across the ring boom and you see Mercer and you hear Merchant wow I do I do miss Larry there were times when I'm watching old broadcasts and I'm just like holy shit nobody caught him saying that or like you know damn nobody was just like shut the fuck up bro like because there are times but there are also times when i'm just like damn they need a larry to just like say some shit when some shit needs to be said on a broadcast and there are times when there's some fucking great broadcasts with the merch bro i always love that he added that he added his scorecard even though no one really ever asked for it yeah yeah Yeah, and he'd always do it to like almost like undermine fucking harold too yeah like jim and he'd be like i have it you know the total opposite (laughs) like damn damn." yeah and then if and then and not only that if you had if you had um Gil Clancy on there too. He had his own scorecard, and then you had three different people giving their own shit at the same yeah. time. It's like, bro, this is what you hired Harold for. Just leave it to him. <laughs> yeah, Clancy was uh, definitely a, a last worder for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Unified Rules really Association of Boxing Commissions. Chip. I watched Foreman, um, Foreman Moore the other day, and like Lampley is like all in the moment. You know, um, what do you, he goes, you know, it happened. It happened. Like whatever. And then you hear, and then you all of a sudden you hear um Gil Clancy. Can't believe it. I can't believe it. <laughs> this is a guy who I thought was a clubber, was a da-da-da. And then and then right after like Martin, you know, Larry um Jim would say something else. He was like, uh the right hand that eviscerated Michael Moore. He's like, it sure did. Jim Jim Lampley like you know whatever I don't have anything specifically against him but that fool was always looking for like the perfect call he's always looking for some fucking college word to throw in there serendipitous something like fuck man come on just call that you don't need to fucking whip out the Oxford dictionary baby Um, and it happened it happened it's one of the most iconic calls in history yeah shit was great but here's a here's a here we're gonna get out of here pretty soon here but i was i actually uh did think real quick of one that was actually semi-recent uh i mean you know the pacquiao ones not that long ago but this is a little bit more recent and is a big reason why we're having one of the kind of current you know stars or whatever i mean oh i know it's 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 kind of uh left uh, you know out out in the ether there for now whether or not he's an actual star i think it's for the moment more hype than anything but he's got an opportunity and that's Jaime Munguia 
Okay. He's the guy who came That's up in right. 20, in 2018. He replaced, uh, I think it was Liam Smith against uh, Saddam Ali. And right. I think that Saddam Ali, and especially in retrospect against Liam Smith, probably would have been a much more competitive fight. They just didn't realize that, I guess, they were dealing with a dude in, Mung- in Mungia who was like, cutting 50 pounds overnight apparently (laughs) huge huge what's what's makes it even more interesting is that mungia was rejected as an opponent for triple g because they thought he was just a kid who would get annihilated yeah and i mean and again in retrospect that shit could have been at least interesting but would have been a lot better than who would they settle on vanus i think it was my god dude and there were people defending that there were people who just like no no I'm like Mm-mm. no 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 don't do that but <laughs> yeah the Jaime Mungia you know uh Saddam Ali already kind of as a farewell opponent for Miguel Cotto that's another thing don't do fighters don't have a farewell fight dude if it's gonna be your last fight don't say shit and then just say shit afterward okay because then you're doomed I but- worked that fight and Miguel Cotto after a a storied career of course his last minute his last fight his farewell fight or whatever and then chooses an opponent who's like just style wise not the greatest style for him like somebody who's not going to cooperate somebody who has a lot of amateur experience Mm -hmm. somebody who knows how to box and knows how to very motivated that night too yeah and motivated yeah dude like you bring somebody in for their come on you know giving him a reason to kick your ass and Miguel Cotto was just at the end of his career couldn't do a damn thing with him so I mean Saddam Ali who's not a star overnight because it's kind of like I think a lot of people recognize that he defeated an older Miguel Cotto or whatever but nonetheless he'd obviously kind of shot to the forefront overnight or whatever I was going to bring up one more then because I thought you were actually going in this direction and that is one of the current depending on who you look at it maybe the best pound for pound fighter on the planet today uh, Terrence Crawford because wasn't he wasn't he um, a replacement for um to fight Brady Prescott I think so I'm not positive, but I think so. I can't, but I couldn't tell you who Prescott was supposed to fight before Same. that. Who, what, who? I'm almost positive it wasn't supposed to be Crawford, though. Now I'm about to look because I mean I've said it before on other shows. I just don't. Uh, I just don't remember. I don't specifically remember this, whether or not he was a replacement. But I was at this fight, and I remember saying, you know somewhat recently as a late replacement a little bit has at least replacement yeah i guess he was i guess you're right but uh, you know i wasn't like an automatic immediate bud crawford fan right at that moment but i obviously nah, did. Nah. but that was an impressive fight i wasn't it took me a while to get in there because you know he put on a he whooped um prescott that night but i remember the reason why I remember he was a last minute because they were mentioning during the fight that Cameron Duncan, who was a uh, Crawford's manager, wasn't like keen on actually matching him. He brought it up to him, but I don't think he really wanted him to take it because he was kind of like worried. And Crawford was just like, "Nah, nah, nah. This is like a big opportunity. I have no, you know, I'll take it in a second, please." Yeah, I'm. I'm looking to see who he was replacing. Well, I don't. I don't immediately see it. For some reason, it's not popping up but in any case it doesn't really matter but yeah um 
yeah, it, it doesn't surprise me also that somebody wouldn't want him as a replacement too, because again, we're talking about a guy who Terrence Crawford had a shitload of amateur experience mm -hmm. was a really like, I don't want to say a hot prospect, but was a known prospect at the time. And so, I mean, like, I don't know, Brady's Prescott always running hot and cold. Like you never knew which, which Brady's Prescott was going to show up, dude. Like, you know, that's why it was a shock that he took out Amir Khan. However, Again, like I always say, <laughs> you always beware of those South American punchers, dude. If a South American has a lofty record and you've mm -hmm. never seen him fight before, do not bring him in. <laughs> Don't bring him in against your prospect, dude. Trust me. Now we've seen it too many times, man. <laughs> Way too many times. Back, um, Epi Mendoza, when he came over and knocked the hell out of um, Michael Olajide's brother. I think Marcos Maidana. Marcos Maidana. Yeah, Victor Ortiz. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that There's wasn't, no I don't guys. think that was a replacement, but still, it was like, you know, nobody knew Maidana and shit. Well, I mean, and, you just bring him in as just like an opponent that no one's ever heard yeah. of. Have a crazy record with a bunch of knockouts. You know, even if Asking they're not their most skilled type of guy, they probably can punch like a fucking mule. <laughs> yeah, dude, I'm telling you, it's it's asking for it because, and this is, I'm sorry to just like start quoting myself here, but this is another shit that I say, dude, is that even when, even when fighters, if you've never seen them before and a guy has a record of like 30 and 0 with 28 knockouts, right? Your first instinct, especially if they've never fought somewhere, they're never fought someone you've seen, never, you've never seen them fight or whatever. And they, they're from some locale that's not known as a boxing place. Your first instinct is to dismiss them and say they can't have knocked they've knocked out a bunch of bums so what but again what i've said before and will continue to say is knocking out a bunch of bums is still difficult even if you've only you know even if you've knocked out 28 of 30 bums that's still knocking out a lot of fucking bums and that guy probably still has some punching power yep. so i'm just saying but yeah, that's, you know, another, another instance of that happening in the, but circling back to this, the Saddam Ali and, and uh, Mungia, you know, again, it kind of remains to be seen. I think that Mungia is so raw and has had so much issue with his style and trying to figure out what his style is mm -hmm. and, you know, et cetera, that like, we don't even really know what to make of him yet, to be honest, but still. I mean, I'm excited to see his potential. Um, yeah. That big fight oh you're talking about McGee. he had yeah, that yeah. big fight on on um recent fight with uh gabe rosado and i think he's improving under morales you know i mean morales seems to be a pretty good trainer with him and it's gelling well with him i so, agree yeah oh um i don't think his power is all that concussive but he's still a bruising guy he's still big he's still young he's still developing and um i guess we'll have to see yeah he's i think that moving up in weight a little bit his power is obviously not as big because he's just not that much bigger than an opponent or whatever, but still it, he's developed enough that it's still interesting. You know, he's not Absolutely. somebody that I'm ready to dismiss or anything like that. No, 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 for sure, man. I'm pretty excited for his future and I want to see him and I'd love to see him against uh God, like a Castano or, or, um, you know, one of the Charlos or wherever. Like, I just want to see him in big fights, man. He makes for good fights. I'd still love to see him against Triple G eventually. I'd love to see him against Murata. Um, That would be a hell of a fight because Murata's not that type of guy that's not going to run away from anybody. Um, you know, there's lots of big fights from out there. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it sounds like that Murata fight's probably going to happen 
at some point. I had, I don't know if they've rescheduled it. I saw some people talking about it earlier today. But... Oh, the Triple G Murata fight? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I guess that's what's going to happen is that if Triple G wins his fight and if, uh, Canelo beats Bavol, then they're going to have their third fight, which I'm like, eh, meh, but I'm sure I mean, yeah. I'll say this much. I would okay. say that if both of those fights in the meanwhile, like if, if Golovkin defeats Murata and it's a good win, Mm-hmm. And Canelo defeats Dimitri Bivol, and it's a good win. I would feel a lot more enthusiastic about that third fight if though if those happened, if that happened, for sure. And because a lot of for me was why I'm kind of just like eh about a third Golovkin fight. And I know we're not talking about late minute, last minute replacements now, but fuck it, whatever. For me, a lot of the issue with a third Golovkin fight is that we don't know like what he has left. We don't know what he looks like. We don't know what the last few years have done to him because he's largely been chasing the Canelo fight. He's been chasing a Canelo fight for going on 10 years now, dude. So like he's gotten two out of it. That's great. He might get a third, but he's spent so much time chasing those fights that we don't know how much he's diminished. So if he's able to show in the meanwhile against Murata, like he blasts Murata out, I'd be like, fuck yeah, let's get that third fight on then. Especially if Canelo beats Bivol, like if he blasts Bivol out, I'd be like, fuck yeah let's do this but those those are two fairly big ifs you know that's the problem yeah man Bivol is going to be a very very tough fight for Canelo I mean I've said that we've said that for many other guys but I think I know yeah I know we keep (laughs) we keep thinking everybody's gonna be a tough fight but that that fucking that Mexican beef bro yeah I know man I have no idea bro he 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 just it's tough to say, man. It's like Bavol has that really, you know, he's a very, very good stylist. He can move. He does have pop. He's very, you know, well-rounded fighter and all that. But, and he seems like he'd have the type of style because of his height and his length and everything else that he should give Canelo trouble. But he's had a couple of kind of wonky performances himself. Yeah, so it's like, yeah, absolutely. there's room there. And you know, I'm sure you know if they're if they're looking at that fight, they probably do see things in his in his game that they could probably take advantage of too. So it's just kind of like you know, yeah, I don't know, man. But well, it, like I said, if those two things happen, if they mm-hmm. both win their fights in the meanwhile, and I will have to, and I do give them credit too because they're both taking meaningful fights in the meanwhile, like not bullshit, like fights just to get through you know whatever but those are meaningful fights so i gotta give them credit if that does wind up happening that's that's cool stuff but hey man i'm all for it yeah hopefully no last minute replacements with for those motherfuckers for sure (laughs) hey dude i i appreciate you going over the last minute replacements with with me man uh it's always a good time absolute blast today man as always yeah dude we went from 1914 all the way up to 2018 so we covered a century we're all right i think we did okay (laughs) that's what i call boxing history bro that's right dude i think we did all right hey well everybody who uh listened in we appreciate you. If you listen on any of the podcast apps, please hit subscribe on those. Leave us a rating. That's appreciated. If you watched on YouTube, do please subscribe on YouTube. Uh, leave a comment. That's also appreciated. And if you're on social media, for instance, if you're on Twitter, go ahead and follow my dude, Punch. Follow my guy, Eris, at PunchZoneEris on Twitter. Follow me, Patrick Connor, at Patrick M. Connor. Go ahead and find Knuckles and Gloves Boxing Radio on Facebook and Instagram. And that's about it, man. Eris, we'll talk soon, bro. Sounds good, man. Thank you, everyone. All right. Take it easy, everybody. Go, 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 go.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.